Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, we recently went on a little trip. We did. We did. We uh, visited the Indiana Historical Society at their invitation. We did a live podcast there. We did. That show actually took place the night before their Midwestern Roots Conference began. uh, And it was such an honor to kick off the festivities. And they being in Indianapolis, they asked us to do something Indiana-related. And we ended up talking about uh, the village slash town of New Harmony and a couple of interesting communal living experiments that were conducted there. Yes, we did not get to go to New Harmony while we were there. It was a very fast trip, but there are lots of things about it online. You can have a lot of experience (laughs) through all of these documents and records and pictures and cool stuff. Yeah, the Indiana Historical Society um, has a really impressive digital archive online, including things not just about New Harmony, but about a lot of different topics. So we encourage people to absolutely go explore. But for now, we'll hop right into our live show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Today... We're talking about the town of New Harmony. And in the window from 1815 to 1827, there were two communal society attempts there in the town. Uh, (laughs) One right after the other. One way more successful than the other. Uh, But to talk about all that, we actually have to start in the 18th century in Germany and talk about George Rapp. George Rapp was born Johann George Rapp on November 1st, 1757 in Iptingen, which is in the Duchy of Württemberg, Germany. And as he was growing up, he learned to be a weaver. He got married to Christina Benzinger in 1783, and then they had a son named Johannes who uh, went more often by John later on. So when we talk about John, that's who that is. And they also had a daughter named Rosina. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about Rosina. Um, I can't imagine why. <laughs> her, uh, one of her children shows up a little bit later in the record. We won't talk about her in this podcast, but her offspring becomes a little bit more uh, important to the story. But we really don't know much about their daughter. But by the 1780s, Rap had kind of moved away from textiles as a vocation and into his growing religious passion. And he had started preaching. Uh, He was Lutheran in terms of his upbringing, but he ended up becoming a pietist, and in very simplistic terms. That is an ideology that focuses on the individual's religious experience uh, as guided by the Bible. And the movement of pietism really began out of this perception of shortcomings of uh, the church and its doctrine and the formality of it. And its followers... Pietism's followers really believed that there needed to be reformation within the church so that they centered theology again on truly living a Christian life and looking to the Bible as the one true authority rather than any sort of hierarchy put together by the church. Yeah, so because of this conflict between the established church and his personal beliefs, Rapp ultimately separated from the Lutherans in 1785, and he didn't go by himself. He had a small group of followers who started meeting at his home, which This was the 18th century in Germany. That was not legal. And their numbers got bigger over time, even though they were having these illicit religious meetings. By the early 1790s, their little uh, gatherings 
as they had grown, had become very concerning to the church. And the church was worried about this separatist group and the influence they were having, and they considered it to be undermining the social order. And Rapp also believed that he was a prophet, uh, something which he stated openly, and that was essentially pretty big piece of rebellion against the established Lutheran church. And he was actually brought before a church commission in 1791 on charges of heresy. And in his testimony, he said to them quite plainly, quote, I am a prophet and I am called to be one. Uh, He was imprisoned briefly. So that's how that worked out. Um, (laughs) But this actually had the opposite of the commission's desired effect in imprisoning him more people started to take notice of him. And as a consequence, his followers just grew in number. So in an effort to control this problem, they told Rapp in 1789 that he needed to submit a formal statement of faith. And that instruction didn't actually come from the church. It came from the government of Württemberg because the church and the state were really deeply interconnected, as was the case in so much of Europe at that point. That was actually one of the things that Rapp and his followers really objected to. Yeah, the writing that Rapp submitted, he did make his formal declaration, but it was really not what the government or the church was looking for. Uh, Rapp took advantage of this moment and said, you want to know what I think? Here's what I think. So he stated quite clearly that while he respected the government, he was very respectful. He was like, I get it. But my followers and I, uh, who started calling themselves the Harmonists, you'll also see that uh, mentioned as the Rappites, and we use those two terms pretty interchangeably in this this, uh, episode, They felt that people should just have freedom to form their own congregations as they wished without the involvement of any civic body or rules from the government. And additionally, though, his statement indicated that the harmonists really didn't have a whole lot of use for some pretty standard social norms and customs uh, that were part of of government and church practice. So they didn't want to baptize infants because they believed in believer baptism later in life. Uh, They also did not believe in serving in the military. So that was another big problem. You can imagine how that went over. Over the next four years, the relationship between the Lutheran government of Württemberg and George Rapp just became increasingly tense. And then in 1803, Rapp was questioned one more time This time, the authorities told him that he was not allowed to speak outside of his town. That seems like an odd instruction, but their thinking was that he had converted everybody that he was going to persuade within the town. (laughs) So if they could just stop him from going to find new people, it would at least stop the spread of this dangerous rhetoric. Yeah, it's an interesting solution. (laughs) But he was so defiant, they kind of knew he wasn't going to stop preaching. So they were like, just don't go outside city limits. Um, I feel like those were like rules my parents gave me when I was a rebellious teenager. Don't go outside city limits. We won't won't pick you up from the jail anywhere but town. Um, (laughs) Look, I was a wild child. But this was the end of life in Germany for Rapp. So he set out for the United States. He landed in Philadelphia in October of 1803. And he had his son John with him, as well as two other men who were part of his separatist group, kind of scouting the situation out. So this show is about New Harmony here in Indiana. But the village in Indiana was not the first Rappite settlement in the United States. And this precursor that they started with was the template that Rapp and his followers used to establish the Indiana Harmony. So we're going to talk about how it came to be founded and what those rules were, because then they carry over to New Harmony here. 
And the choice of the U.S. for this new settlement was based on Rapp's interpretation of the Bible. Uh, the passage in Revelation 12:6, which reads, quote, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared for God, had convinced him that the unsettled land in North America was where he and his followers should make their new home. Rapp had hoped that he could either get a land grant from the U.S. government or a provision for the purchase of some discounted land. He did not really understand the process involved. This was well before things like the Homestead Act that made it a lot easier for people to get land. Congress had to approve either of those options. Rapp did not anticipate that as being part of it, and he wasn't really dissuaded when he found it out. He had been hoping, though, that like even though people were telling him, no, Congress has to do that for you, honey. Um, <laughs> but he was hoping that he really had something special going on and that he could be given a parcel of land to start his community without having to mess with all that red tape. And so his, his big idea was that he was going to go straight to President Thomas Jefferson, uh, which he did. <laughs> He went and spoke with Jefferson on July 12th of 1804, and he explained his plans and the situation and what he had come from. And while the president thought this whole conversation was pretty compelling, he also deferred to Congress. And he clarified for Rapp that that was the only governing body that could grant him land. Uh, Jefferson did, though, use his influence. He wrote some letters so that there would be an offer of land and that offer would be protected. Uh, he had give it made sure that rap had this option to purchase a 40,000 acre township here in indiana rap did not have enough money for that one at the time uh so that one did not happen so part of the reason that rap was willing to take his request directly to the president was because he needed to get things settled as quickly as possible he had nothing to send him back to germany he had nothing to return to there his estate had been seized by the Württemberg government and he was considered to be a fugitive, so he could not just go back. No, and he didn't want to. Uh, he only had those few people with him when he traveled to North America, but he had already written back to Germany that was like, I am never coming back. Um, he didn't want to return to Europe at all. He really thought like he was where God wanted him to be. And he also, in those letters, spoke about the potential of the U.S. settlement. And as a consequence, more of her, his followers were already on the way. Uh, they were ready to set up this new utopia and they started arriving in Baltimore aboard the ship Aurora on July 4th of 1804. And two more groups of harmonists followed in the next six weeks aboard the Atlantic and the Margareta. So that meant he had an urgent need to have a home for all these new arrivals and without the assistance that he was hoping for from the U.S. government. So Rapp wound up purchasing several thousand acres of land north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in Butler County. That cost him a little more than $10,000. And he had decided that Pennsylvania, Virginia, Kentucky, or Maryland would all be good options for where they could set things up. But this particular piece of land was not his first choice of location. Nevertheless, though, the harmonists pooled all of their resources to try to make a go of it, and they finalized that purchase on December 22nd of 1804. Not everybody was pleased with this particular Pennsylvania land, though, and some folks did leave Rapp's group and go strike out on their own. On February 15th of 1805, Rapp officially founded the Harmony Society. Uh, that became the governing body of the town that he founded, Harmony, Pennsylvania. And the society maintained all of their documents in the official language of the society as designated by George Rapp, which was German. He was like, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but like, 
Christ is coming, you guys. We don't have to learn another language. We're good. Uh, literally, really. He was like, don't, let's not waste time with that. Like, we're just, let's keep what we know. This is going to be more efficient. Um, he also established himself sort of in this, this document as the ultimate leader. And when you start looking at biographies of rap and stories about him and how his society worked, he is characterized in two very, very different ways. There are some where he is described as this very benevolent and loving father figure, uh, you know, kind of like a, a hippie love figure that wants to start a cool community, everybody. Um, and then in others, he's really represented much more as a manipulative dictator who's like, well, I'm going to America because Europe is not gonna happen for us. You'll die if you stay, you should come. Um, Probably those are two sides of the same coin, and he may have been both of those things, depending on who he was dealing with and what topic was at hand. But in all matters, no matter whether they were just the logistics and finances of the community or matters of faith, or how members of the group would interact with outsiders, including how they voted later on, Rap was deferred to. He made all the decisions, and his word was absolutely final. So if you signed on to Harmony's Articles of Association, you relinquished all personal assets to the community and you promised to live by the community's rules, the number of initial members who first signed on with this charter was first established, that estimate varies. Different accounts cite anywhere from 31 to 100 families. So that was as many as 400 to 500 people. Yeah, some were like tracking by families, some were trying to track by individuals. And I think that leads to some confusion in what those numbers really were. But after that initial charter was established, any new prospective members had to agree to a trial period, which is usually like six to eight weeks before they could become full members. And the charter initially included a provision for any members who left the group that were in good standing to be given a sum of cash when they left so that they were getting a little something back of what they had put in and also they could start their life elsewhere without having to go from zero. We're going to talk about what happened to that little plan later, because it didn't work out so good. I bet you can guess. <laughs> so the group quickly set to work. They cleared about 150 acres of land in just the first year. They built an estimated 50 log homes, plus a mill and, of course, a church. There was also a committee of elders, hand-chosen by RAP, to help lead the adjustment into more communal living. I feel like this is the first place that they really diverge from all the utopian communities that we have ever talked about in that they actually showed up and got some things done. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a transition team. Like, I, I like the idea that they recognized that these people were all part of a group in Germany, but they weren't accustomed to this idea of, like, we all live together in one big community and share our resources. So he did have people that were like, here, we're going to get you through this transition, which is probably why his communities worked better than some others. Um, Two years into this communal living effort, the Harmonists, in pace with the Second Great Awakening, which was sweeping through the US, had their own reawakening. Beginning in 1807, the belief among Rapp's followers that Christ was soon to return to Earth took on a much more immediate tone. Rapp had come to the conclusion uh, that the Napoleonic Wars, which had started in 1803, were a sign of the imminent return of the Son of God, and that was because he saw Napoleon Bonaparte as an antichrist. Uh, I said this to Holly while we were planning this episode, but we just got back from Paris not long ago, and we saw Napoleon's tomb. And I was unprepared for uh, 
Napoleon, who, you know, we've always learned as a guy that we had a lot of wars with, uh, in a giant tomb surrounded by angel statues, France definitely did not think he was an antichrist. Um, so Rap thought that this guy's rise to power really signaled the end of Europe and the world order. Yeah, that was one of the many reasons he was like, Europe is not going to exist for long, come on. Um, mysticism was also a huge part of the Rappite interpretation of scripture. So George Rapp and his followers, but again, he was always really leading the, the ideology, were always watching world events. He was kind of a news junkie. Um, and they were watching events closely to see what they might portend because he was always relating what was going on around them and throughout the world to what was in the Bible and trying to kind of parse out any deeper meaning he could. And the group often discussed these matters as part of their religious practice. They would basically have like evening services and discussion where they would talk about, hey, this thing happened over here, this might mean this. Um, tying all of these various events, like we said, to biblical prophecy. So the Rappites were millennialists. They believed that the Son of God was going to appear once again in human form and then rule the world as his kingdom for a thousand years of peace and that this was going to start at any moment. So they sought to purify themselves in preparation. So soon there was no tobacco use in harmony. Rapp's followers shifted to a celibate life. The end times are coming. You don't need to have any babies. Uh, prior to this decision for celibacy, there had been a number of marriages in harmony, and, and George's son John had actually been one of the last to get married in harmony. But even married couples were encouraged to abstain from sexual activity and to live as brothers and sisters of faith. So John Rapp, incidentally, clashed with his father uh, during this time. <laughs> The cartoon that just ran in my head was like if one of my parents pulled that. And I'd be like, a world of no Jan and Ron. This isn't going to happen. Um, but yeah, so John and George had some problems. Uh, and John left Harmony. He moved to Ohio. And he and his father George later became embroiled in a legal battle over the money that John had contributed to Harmony, uh, to the trust, which he wanted back and several other members that had decided that they were going to leave joined this suit seeking their money as well. Uh, all of them, after kind of having this drag out for a while, because uh, it seemed like they were not in good standing per uh, George's assessment, thus they were not entitled to that, uh, but they eventually abandoned legal action. They just got tired of fighting, and they gave up on ever reclaiming their assets. But John did go back and rejoin his father's community, although it was not for terribly long because he died when he was still a very young man in his late 20s, and that happened in 1812. We will get right back to our new Harmony Live show at the Indiana Historical Society in just a moment, but first we're going to pause and have a quick sponsor break. So George Rapp was setting up this whole thing. The idea was that the millennium was coming and there were naturally going to be some expenses related to the second coming. Uh, Rapp knew they might have to travel to New Jerusalem with all of his followers so that they could meet Christ and present themselves. Uh, and that was just one. For another, there were concerns that there was going to be global instability leading up to this prophesied return that might put them in a position where it would be uh, pretty good to have some ready cash, a little financial liquidity to get through. 
And the Harmonists also wanted to have money to help support this new world order. So to that end, a fund was started for donations in coin. Uh, and that was a fund that Rapp managed almost entirely on his own. Uh, so while sexual activity and other pleasures were completely denounced, financial success was A-OK, -okay, um, seen in a completely different light, the logic being that it could be used in service of faith. And this is the second way that these folks are totally different from every other <laughs> utopian experiment we've ever talked about. Like, money's cool. Gonna have a lot of it. So even as the Harmonists became more and more settled in Butler County, there were some conflicts that arose. Rob was really think of, thinking of other locations that might be better. And as early as 1806, he was submitting new requests to the government for different land. And one of the things that he and the Harmonists had wanted when they had immigrated from Germany to North America was to cultivate vineyards and orchards. And this Pennsylvania land that they were on was just not working out in that regard. And it was also not in a spot where exporting anything that they did grow could be done at the level that they needed to keep growing. So they were just a little bit too geographically isolated, and he thought they weren't going to continue flourishing if they stayed there. Yeah, that land uh, was near a river, but it was a very shallow river. They, it was not really like gonna support heavy duty irrigation and they couldn't start shipping things. Uh, and additionally, as the area around that settlement grew more populated, the Harmonists found that for one, their new neighbors really did not understand their community and they were particularly suspicious of how wealthy the Harmonists seemed to be. Um, they did not live like paupers, they had nice things. Um, you know, people that visited would comment on how beautiful everything was and how, you know, well-appointed the rooms were and stuff. So um, the Rappites also had this little problem where they refused to participate in the War of 1812 and they disregarded draft notices. They were fined for it and they paid those fines, but other people in the state really started to regard them with a lot of distrust. So in 1814, they made the decision to head west after Rapp had sent a group out to scout for some possible new locations. And the Indiana Territory offered better climate for the crops that they wanted to grow. They could get a bigger piece of land than they had back in Butler County. Uh, and Harmony, Pennsylvania, the whole thing, was sold to a Mennonite named Abraham Ziegler, who paid $100,000 for it. In 1814, y'all, that's... That's that was 10 times change. more than he bought the land for. Yes. Uh, but he had improved it. Uh, yeah, sure. it <laughs> I feel like we just did history property hunters. Um, <laughs> but I don't like the color. I don't. Do you guys watch shows and get frustrated by those people that don't know that paint is real? <laughs> just paint the room. It makes me crazy. Um, so in 1815, New Harmony, Indiana was officially founded on the Wabash River. Uh, as an aside, you will often see this discussed simply as Harmony without the new. That was Rapp's intent to just call it Harmony again. But the new got added over time to distinguish between the two locations. Uh, and in reference to both the first and second settlements, depending on what document you look at, sometimes Harmony has a Y and sometimes an IE, just FYI if you go looking. So Rapp and the Harmonists put a lot of work to turn this riverfront land, which at that point was unsettled, into a village. They felled trees again and cut them into lumber to use for construction. They dug out clay from the ground to make bricks for the same purpose. It was really arduous work. And first they had to build kind of a pre-settlement for everybody to live on while they were building the larger village. 
They also established farmland, and they were able to cultivate that vineyard and the fruit crops that they had been wanting the whole time. So Father Rapp's home was in the center of town, and everything kind of radiated out from it. There were four dormitories built adjacent to it, uh, each of which could house 60 to 80 residents. Uh, There were also individual homes, and each street had a water well and an oven that were there for communal use. And there were common-use plants like herbs that were grown in public spaces, and anyone could just come and take them as needed. Of course, there were some difficulties in this move. Malaria was still really common in parts of the U.S. at this point, so malaria, another disease, claimed the lives of a significant number of harmonists in that first year in the, in the first years in Indiana, a cemetery had to be established a lot sooner than they were planning to have to deal with these mortalities. And a thing that's super fascinating to me about the cemetery is that it is on the site of native mounds that date back to the Middle Woodland period. So there was like 2,000-year-old mounds where the cemetery went. Yeah. We, do, we don't know what the logic was here, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. Um, But as this new community began to grow, Rapp was pretty smart in that he knew that to survive, they needed to diversify, and uh, they wanted to do this so that they could ensure their ongoing financial stability as well. So this was a lesson that they had learned when they were in Pennsylvania, where he eventually saw that the growth and commerce potential of the settlement they had there was finite, and he did not want the same thing to happen again. So their agricultural efforts were geared not towards subsistence farming, where they might sell any extra, but to both providing the food the community needed and having enough produce to sell. They also established mills to process cotton and wool and, uh, again, for their clothes, but also they were making enough to trade. These were essentially little factories. And this made Harmony, Indiana prosperous. Yeah, and this prosperity was really in part due to this new location. They weren't in a place that was heavily populated when they got there. This was essentially frontier land which the U.S. had gained possession of in the 1804 Treaty of Vincennes, which read, in part, the said Delaware tribe, for the considerations hereinafter mentioned, relinquishes to the United States forever all their right and the title to the tract of country which lies between the Ohio and Wabash rivers and below the tract ceded by the Treaty of Fort Wayne and the road leading from Vincennes to the Falls of Ohio. So this, of course, was all part of the larger series of treaties that affected this whole part of the U.S. uh, to let the government take land that had been previously inhabited by Native peoples, which also continued long after we're talking about today. So this is all sort of going on at the same time as all the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah. So the nearest town at this point was more than 30 miles away. So there was not a lot of competition uh, for traveler business when people moved through the area and might need to trade or purchase supplies to get them ready to keep going wherever they were headed. And additionally, the settlement was right there on the river. So they started shipping their manufactured goods from that point of departure, establishing a very wide-reaching retail business, all run on a communal model where everyone contributed. So while the men generally saw to the agricultural efforts, the women and children worked in the mills and workshops producing dry goods. So they had gotten to Indiana in 1814, and that meant that the Rappites were really setting up their home and their business settlement at the same time that Indiana was transitioning to statehood. It became the 19th U.S. state at the end of 1816. So the residents of Harmony were basically able to get into the ground floor, so to speak, of this new state economy. 
In addition to the fruits and the vegetables that they were growing and selling, the town's general store had clothing and shoes, cold weather, cold weather gear, saddles and bridles and plows and wagons, anything else that somebody might need. Yeah, it was Pioneer Target. Um, 100%. And people went in, they only needed shoes, but they came out with like so much stuff. They had somebody following you around like, do you need a cart? Do you need a cart? No, I don't need a cart. If you give me a cart, I'm buying everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the town also produced beer, wine, and whiskey, which could be purchased at the general store, or you could enjoy it in the town tavern, which they had also built. Uh, Harmonists were not anti-alcohol, but they were very much anti-drunkenness. The whiskey that they produced, for example, was not something any of them drank. Uh, It was for other people. They occasionally had wine, but the rest of the alcoholic beverages that they produced were strictly commercial. The harmonists of the town could just ask for anything that they needed without paying for it because their their participation in the community entitled them to it. But really, at least in terms of food, there wasn't a whole lot that the harmonist households needed at the general store. As part of the establishment of the community, every home was set up to have its own gardens. There was uh, poultry and a cow for each household. And as we mentioned, there were also public access gardens near the dormitories. But outsiders, of course, coming through had to pay. And on occasion, those outsiders found the prices a little bit high and they were kind of resentful that not everybody had to pay for stuff. Uh, The idea of communal living in this way was completely alien and they sometimes felt like they were being like treated poorly. Uh, Additionally, people certainly noticed that while the harmonists were perfectly happy to sell hard liquor, they were not willing to drink it. Uh, And this led to some interesting discord because there were customers like in the tavern that kind of just felt like they were being judged. (laughs) Like I'm gonna sit here and have a whiskey and there would just be people staring at them. (laughs) Just not how I enjoy a vodka, so I understand. So all this commerce was largely the work of Frederick Riker Rapp, which was George, Rapp, George Rapp's adopted son. George had understood the need for diversification, but it was really Frederick who managed all these various enterprises that was making the community really profitable. The profits were used to purchase additional land and expanding New Harmony's footprint and enabling more crops to be planted for future commerce. Uh, Frederick was Rapp's right hand in all these business dealings, and it had been Frederick who had stayed behind in Harmony, Pennsylvania, to wrap up the business affairs there after George had moved on. In Indiana, he was in charge of both the commerce and the political relationships with outsiders. Yeah, so when uh, county officials had asked Rapp to send a representative from his group to the state constitutional convention in 1816, it was naturally Frederick who was chosen. This was also in part because Frederick was one of the few people who had learned a bit of English. Um, (laughs) Truly. uh, So he could go, his English was allegedly not fantastic, but he could get along. Um, And he was assigned, interestingly enough, for a pacifist group to the committee that drafted the section of the constitution that related to the militia. This actually really worked out, though, because it was due to his influence that wording was included at that point to allow uh, conscientious objection to the bearing of arms with a provision to pay a fee for exclusion from the draft. And just as had been the case in Pennsylvania, the refusal of the Rappites to participate in military service kind of rankled their neighboring communities. Around the same time, New Harmony was growing pretty rapidly, and they needed more able bodies to run all these manufacturing enterprises. And to meet that demand, the requirements of religious devotion started relaxing a little bit. 
Frederick Rapp was appointed as one of the commissioners of the State Bank of Indiana, and this shift of focus to commerce was particularly upsetting for a number of the harmonists. Their society had been founded entirely on their faith, with their commercial interests always framed as being necessary to support that faith, but now it seemed less and less like that was the case. There was an ebb and flow in New Harmony's population in the late 18-teens as a number of people left. New immigrants arrived from Germany and replaced them. But uh, the acceptance of new members turned out to be completely unsuccessful. Uh, Rapp later wrote that the newcomers were, quote, too wild for our congregation. Uh, And that he was, and this is a quote, sick and tired of them. (laughs) Um, And he had actually been paying for the passage from Germany for some people who had written and said that they wanted to join the community, but he put an end to that practice. He also stopped the existing members of the community from writing home to Germany being like, the U.S. is great, you guys. Um, he, because people were saying, like, I have found a better life here. You can come and, you know, to family members and friends, you could come and be part of this. And he was like, please stop doing that. We can't... Um, can't do that. He wanted people of faith, and most importantly, people so faithful that they would obey him in whatever he said, uh, and he just could not trust any newcomers to live up to his high standard of what exactly that meant. So even for the new members who were devout enough for George Rapp's taste, it just wasn't easy. Members who had been with the Harmonists since 1805 were pretty judgmental of the newer members, and factions started to form of the old and new groups. In 1818, George Rapp revised those articles that had been established 13 years prior when the Pennsylvania settlement began in an effort to address the destabilization that was taking place. And two major changes came from this revision. So first, all records of how much any given person had contributed to the community upon their entry into it were destroyed. The intent was that the old and the new factions would stop bickering about who was more valuable to the community and who had like given more and deserved more. Uh, Second, that provision for those choosing to leave to get a cash grant upon their exit was stricken from the charter uh, because as people were wanting to leave, he was recognizing that he couldn't just keep giving bushels of money away. So at the same time as these internal issues were plaguing New Harmony, there was also mounting friction with their neighbors. At this point, immigrants who'd been in the U.S. for a while and the first generation of European descendants to be born on U.S. soil started to view immigrants, new immigrants, as potentially destructive to what they had built. little (laughs) ironic. Yeah. Yeah. And Rapp's community had a number of things working against it as this settlement grew. So for one thing, uh, or as this sentiment grew rather, I'm sorry, uh, for one thing it was self-isolating. So most of the members still only spoke German. They refused to bear arms. And that group was wealthy enough to pay the penalty required to exempt them from military service, whereas most people could not have afforded it. They also commanded just a huge chunk of the area's financial capital, and they seemed impervious to the various shifts in the market that negatively impacted the communities around them. And they weren't having children, so they weren't helping to build the U.S. population. Uh, Just as had been the case back in Pennsylvania, Rapp and the Harmonists were facing increasing resentment from the locals and dealing with their own fractures within the commune, so they decided to leave. They left all their hard work in New Harmony, Indiana to start all over again. Rapp still believed that the second coming was imminent. He wanted to regroup, reset the community with the focus of preparing for that. 
And in the decade that they spent here in Indiana, Rapp and his people had really built something considerable. So they had not only raised such varied crops as sugarcane, wheat, hemp, cotton, and flax, among others, they had also built that general store, an inn, various specialty shops, textile mills, tanneries, and distilleries. They were producing 3,000 gallons of whiskey for sale each year and harvesting thousands of bushels of things like potatoes, rye, and oats. And they had started importing sheep from Spain to make fine woolens, and they were able to get into a textile market that previously had only included wool fabric that was imported from Europe. But then, in 1824, New Harmony was sold to a man named Robert Owen for another selling of an entire town in this story. Uh, and the Harmonists left Indiana. Okay, so before we get into the next phase of New Harmony's history, uh, we are going to take another little break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. Robert Owen was born on May 14th of 1771 in Newtown, Montgomeryshire, Wales. I have probably said that incorrect for the Welsh people. Uh, his parents, Robert Owen and Anne Williams, had six other children in addition to Robert. And as a child, Owen moved to London and he became a clothier's apprentice at the age of 10. And in that job, he had access to his employer's vast library of books, which he loved. He also really excelled in the textile industry, and before age 20, he was already running a large Manchester cotton mill. That went on to great success under his leadership, and through his success, he started making little efforts into the idea of communal living. And his first such work started when he convinced his bosses to purchase some mills in the Scottish village of New Lanark, which was a really impoverished community. And Robert Owen wanted to improve the quality of life for everyone in New Lanark, so he worked on initiatives to make the housing there safer and cleaner and to educate the children in the area as well as the adults. And he was mindful of the welfare of the workers in the mills he managed. Uh, when the mills closed for several months during the War of 1812, he actually made sure that the workers continued to get paid during that time. Naturally, things like this really endeared him to the people he employed, but his business partners... Not so much. Disagreements over this led Robert Owen to breaking from his established job and starting his own company in 1813. The stockholders in his new uh, venture were pretty like-minded. They were content to take a smaller share of the profits so that the money that was made could be put toward benevol benevolent projects. And soon they bought out his old partners. Yeah. Uh, and one of the drivers in Owens's work was actually his attitude toward religion. He thought that all established religions were really problematic, and he thought that people's circumstances had greater influence over their behavior and their lives than any church ever could. And so he thought that if everyone's circumstances were improved, the world would just become a better place. And he was working to make New Lanark an example of how that ideology worked. And as a consequence, the village, which was pretty successful in his efforts, uh, was visited and studied by everyone from royals to philosophers. He kept working on bettering the lives of people in the village, particularly the children, and he wanted to extend that beyond the town. He lobbied among manufacturers to reduce the number of hours that children worked. That was initially voted down. He also opened Great Britain's first kindergarten in New Lanark in 1816 called the Institution for the Formation of Character. 
And all of this was really like a, a slow burn buildup to lead Owen to the idea of communal living. And he thought particularly that if unemployed workers displaced by machinery in the Industrial Revolution just had safety and security and a reasonable standard of living, a lot of the world's ills would be cured. Like, he saw it as a pretty obvious chain of events. Like, people are without work, they don't have money, they turn to crime, or they just fall on hard times and they suffer, and we could prevent all of that. Uh, he envisioned these villages that were designed for this idea where family-oriented dormitories existed that had common areas where people could cook and socialize, and children would stay with their parents the first three years but then be raised by the collective, and then everyone would work as they were able to keep the whole thing going, including agricultural work to provide food. So Owen had actually made contact with New Harmony four years before he took possession of it, he had written to George Rapp with this series of questions about how the Rappite utopia was functioning. He had done that in 1820 as his ideas of these communities to prevent pauperism were forming in his head. So when George Rapp's harmonists were ready to sell, Owen was ready to buy. And he already knew that the harmonist village had been profitable. After writing a number of essays about how communal society could succeed, he was ready to take possession of this whole town and prove it. And additionally, he had his own problems that were making it pretty appealing to leave home and strike out in a new place. Uh, his outspoken anti-religion stance had really strained relationships with his business partners, as well as his wife, who was very religiously devout. Uh, I can't imagine that marriage. Um, <laughs> And his work in New Lanark was actually hitting some problems as well. There had been a typhoid outbreak, which was really kind of scandalous for a town that was touted as having impeccable cleanliness. Uh, and there was a dispute over pay rates that was brewing. And part of the problem was that as Owen had gotten more and more obsessed with creating a new utopia, he had grown more and more distant from that company town that was his first experiment in socialized society. Owen paid $135,000 for New Harmony, and that purchase was final in early January of 1825. Robert Owen was really eager to get to work. Five of his children, which included four sons and a daughter, traveled to Indiana to help their father. And as spring arrived, Owen offered a life in the community to anyone who cared to join and then uh, embrace its ideals of equality and communal living. Yep, open invitation. That sounds smart. What could go wrong? Also, <laughs> we're going to return to the ideas of equality in a minute. Yeah, not so much. Uh, so his new town had come with 180 buildings, but they were pretty quickly kind of packed to the gills because a lot of people wanted in on this opportunity. But almost from the beginning, things went wrong. For one, Owen continually badmouthed established religion, which made a lot of the newcomers really uneasy. He was a dedicated follower of Enlightenment thinking, and he wanted to eschew tradition in favor of forging all new paths, which was another unpopular position that made people a little nervous. Uh, and he tended to appeal to the upper class for financing and support, and he misjudged the willingness of the U.S. upper classes to participate in such an experiment, particularly an experiment like this that had no ties whatsoever to religion. And spoke openly against it, in fact. <laughs> yeah. He did find some help in the form of William McClure, who was a Scottish-born merchant who also believed in social reform and ultimately did invest heavily in New Harmony. McClure offered his own funds to the development of New Harmony's schools and engaged some of the most respected educators of the day to teach there. I mean, the schools had a really amazing reputation. 
McClure also paid for the school's labs to have scientific equipment and other necessities. Yeah, I feel like there could be a whole sideshow just about the people that he brought. Um, we don't talk about it nearly enough in this one because it's about the whole whole story, but oh, there were some great people doing cool things. Um, Owen had created a foundation document called Rules for a Good Community in 1925 that outlined what he thought was necessary to create an equality-based society. Um, incidentally our lovely hosts have this digitized online, um, as well as many, many other fabulous documents that are really, really, um, were really helpful to me in doing research for this, but also just are fascinating to look through. Uh, so Owens is, Owens, I keep wanting to put an S on his name. He's just Owen. Um, Owens rules were pretty lengthy, but they set up some very important ideas, including the fact that the financial accounts of the community should be maintained by a chosen treasurer who reported to a committee on all transactions, and that all of those financial records needed to be open for anyone in the community to go and review if they wanted to. Robert Owen's rules also set up different departments to manage things like manufacture, policing, health, and education, things like that. These divisions would be run by subcommittees. Skillful, practical men from the community with expertise in any of these areas could be engaged by the appropriate subcommittee for assistance. But really, despite all these plans, Owen's utopia was a lot harder, he found, to execute in reality than it had been on paper. Uh, for one, even though it was going to be a society of equals, there were some pretty clear class distinctions. Wealthy people had moved there due to the draw of this life among the intelligentsia, and working people had moved there for a chance to have a better life, and everybody thought it was going to be equal, but the reality was that those two groups rarely mixed. They kind of chose instead to self-segregate along wealth lines. There wasn't a, rel a relinquishing of personal wealth in Owen's group like there had been in Raps. So this class structure had just followed everyone into New Harmony. The working class was resentful of wealthier inhabitants' inability to contribute to the labor that was needed to sustain such a place. No structure was ever fully implemented. The, com the community couldn't really become self-sufficient. So... The group was floundering while Owen was continuing to put his own money into trying to keep it afloat. Even on uneven footing, I feel like we should mention that there were some efforts, really, to make New Harmony into a community. Um, Owen's children, in particular, did a lot of things. His son, William, started a thespian society so that uh, they could have arts and, and people could go see plays whenever they wished. Uh, the school system is really what flourished, though. Children had both academic curriculum and training in trades, but ultimately, when it came down to it, and things really were obviously not going to work out, Owen blamed McClure and the educational setup for tanking the community. Owen gave one last address to the community on May 6th of 1827, and in it, he said that McClure's system only reinforced class distinctions instead of erasing him. There had been some debate over whether he was favoring children that were from wealthier families with better opportunities. Um, Owen also thought there was too much creativity in the curriculum and not enough morality education. And he basically told everyone his school ideas had been superior to McClure's, and if they had just done it his way, they could have sustained the town. So long story. Bless long, his heart. Yeah. Long story short, this did not go all that well. By the time Robert Owen decided to end his involvement in this utopian dream, he had lost 80% of his personal fortune. 
He went on to participate, but in a much less central way in other utopian experiments, but he eventually focused a lot more on activism and the establishment of trade unions. Yeah, he really became like a labor activist, which kind of seemed like it should have been his thing from the get-go, but he, he learned a lot in the process. Um, if you are wondering what happened to the Rappites and their leader after they left Indiana, they moved as planned and started a new settlement, returning to Pennsylvania to do it. That new home was called Economy, uh, and it was where George Rapp lived out the rest of his life. And just as they had grown New Harmony into a massive and profitable enterprise, Economy had investments in railroads and the oil industry, and their export business reached dozens of states and 10 countries. So they just kept on going with that money thing. It fascinates me, because so often the story is, and then they ran out of money and everyone got sick and moved away. <laughs> uh, even though they were very financially successful, it was not entirely smooth. Rap and his adopted son, Frederick, who he had relied on so heavily since the beginning of the Harmonist time in the United States, started to have disagreements about planning for the financial future of the community. That caused a lot of fracturing within the group and a lot of tension. Yeah, when they started to think about, like, uh, there was also this problem where people were realizing, like, um, what happened Christ to the isn't here yet, y'all. Um, <laughs> we're not having kids, and we're getting older, and there's some problems. Like, they started to realize this was not working out. Uh, Rap died in 1847 at the age of 89, and uh, remember that collection fund that he started <laughs> the early years of his community because they wanted to have funds so they could deal with travel needs to Jerusalem and any chaos that ensued. When he died, he had amassed half a million dollars that he kept in a vault under his bedroom. Um, <laughs> He had withdrawn all of the Harmonist's money from banks because he feared a banking collapse. So he was just literally sitting on top of a pile of money. I feel like that, that wasn't an unjustified fear, but at the same time, that's a lot of money to have in a vault under your bedroom. Yeah, I would dig it. Yeah. <laughs> The Rappite community continued, but without its charismatic leader, it couldn't really sustain things long-term. Soon, members of the group were questioning some of those things they had agreed to, in particular, that celibacy situation. <laughs> that also meant that they hadn't expanded their community by starting families, and without Rapp deriving that whole ideology, they also weren't bringing in new members. So just the math was not in their favor long-term. In the 20 years after Rap died, the group shrank down to about 250 members, and from there it continued to diminish right up until the dawn of the 20th century. In 1903, the town of Economy was sold by a representative of the remaining Rappites for several million dollars. Uh, in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court issued judgments on the last of the disputed Rappite assets at Economy, and within a year, the Harmonist movement was completely a matter of history. As for the people who had landed in the failed utopia of Robert Owen, one particular aspect of their efforts really did take hold and survive. The educators that McClure had brought in called the boatloaders because the ship most of them traveled on to the United States had been nicknamed the boatload of knowledge, which I love. Uh, they, I think that's a good t-shirt. We should do the that. The boatload of knowledge shirt is a good one. Uh, they stayed. They created this enclave of science and education that persisted, persisted for long after Owen was gone. Yeah, McClure, as, as you guys probably know, because you live near here, was really known for his uh, knowledge of geology, and he 
really started some interesting stuff in New Harmony in terms of like teaching geology and establishing labs there and uh, the pretty long tale for him of his legacy as a consequence. Um, in 1965, New Harmony became a National Historic District. Many sections of the town have been restored to their Rapite era versions and the village's famous hedge labyrinth was restored in 1940, much to the, to the delight and sometimes confusion of tourists who choose to enter. Um, as well as people who go visit. That's, I have not gotten to go to New Harmony. That's the one thing I wanna see. Um, I will get lost in that labyrinth and maybe never come out. Uh, but that is our New Harmony tale for the day. Yes. Our very deepest thanks to Lauren Pictel and Mary Angeline and everybody at the Indiana Historical Society who made this event so much fun for us. Yeah, they were all just absolutely delightful. And it's a place that is so turned on by history. Everyone that works there is really excited to share history with the people mm -hmm. that come and visit. And we absolutely had so much fun just getting to run around there for a, just a few minutes before our show really happened. And and it it was very invigorating. Like, it's one of those things that makes me go, like, history is in good hands. We're, yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> if you are in that area or near that area, I mean, I recommend paying a visit. In addition to their Indiana history uh, exhibits that they have for various things, they also have just done a whole lot of work collecting oral histories and making exhibits about those oral histories and making sure that those oral histories reflect all the people in Indiana? Yeah. There was a, an Asian experience in Indiana uh, exhibit that was there when we were there, and they were talking about ones in the past, ones coming up. Really cool. Yeah, they are definitely driven by inclusivity and and a really, like, broad approach to history and including everyone in it. Uh, we also want to give a special thanks to the listeners who came to the event early as part of a meet and greet option that we had. We had so much fun talking to them mm -hmm. and everyone was so lovely. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you, Indianapolis, for having us and for everyone that we interacted with for being just an utter delight. Do you have a little listener mail to take us out from all this? I do, and it's actually live show themed a little bit. Um, it is uh, from our listener, Anna, who sent this incredibly cool card uh, on a, a map note, which is a, a map of the Seattle area. And then on the back, she wrote us a little note. She wrote, Dear Holly and Tracy, greetings from Seattle. I have been a fan of the show for five plus years now, and my husband and I were lucky enough to attend your Halloween-themed live show on Safety Coffins in Seattle last year which was super fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Seattle was a great crowd. She said, my macabre sense of humor was delighted, and I was so glad to hear you answer my question on what historical figure would you take with you to Disney World? I don't know that that made it into the live show, but in case anyone's curious, it's the easiest prediction for me ever. I wanted to sit between Marie Antoinette and Queen Victoria in a doom buggy and go through Haunted Mansion because I thought their reactions would be really funny. <laughs> uh Anna goes on to say, I came across an interesting article in Bust Magazine this month about stagecoach Mary Fields, the first African-American woman to become a mail carrier in the United States, and I thought you might enjoy, so she included that for us. Uh, she says, as always, love your podcast and stay curious. Thank you so much, Anna. That was so sweet. Um, 
And what a lovely follow-up to uh, a show we did months and months ago, but was super fun. Yeah. Um, I love doing live shows. They're the, the funnest. I know that's For sure. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can visit mistinhistory.com for our website, which has an archive of every show ever. If you would like to subscribe to the show and you haven't yet, what? Go ahead and do that. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever it is that you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 